You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. My mother used to say to me, where are you running? I don't know, I say, but I'm running. I don't know why. I'm still like that now. I was in a very musical family with five kids, and it was right after watching the Beatles as neighborhood girls got on the phone. What about an all-girl band? We were the earliest female group that rocked hard, didn't play like girls, like tinky tinky, you know. Imagine the influence of Detroit. My brother had set up Mickey Mouse coming in. An offer was made that he wanted just her. It devastated them, and it devastated me. I didn't know anybody, didn't go anywhere. It was really, really lonely. Then I would say Susie Quattro came out of the ashes. She was the first and broke the ice and kicked the door for us gals. I've never seen a woman with an instrument in a band. At that time, rock was a male-orientated business. She has transcended her gender. She is now just considered an icon. A lot of girls that tried to be Susie Quattro, but when it's in the DNA, you can't fake that. Certainly her position in being like the first woman leading a band, having hits like that. This woman has so much energy, so much talent. She could have done anything. She started expanding her career. In fact, that was hard on the marriage. Strange how people don't like you to step out of a box, do they? And I refuse to be boxed. And there's a whole chunk of growing up that got missed out. That's the person I'm trying to address now, that little girl. Yeah, I wouldn't tell her not to go. Just stop running so fast. She did far more than show that women could play music. She showed us that we could be who we were. Because with Susie, there was never a question. Susie had a dream in Detroit, and all these years later, she is still living that dream. That is amazing. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Mr. Leon Chase. But my friends call me the Daytona Demon. Also back in the booth is Mr. Morris Burstinsky. What's shaking, pal? On this special episode, we are looking at the 2019 film Suzy Q. It's a documentary about Detroit's own Suzy Quattro, who left the States early in her career and became more of a rock star in the UK and Australia, while not charting as high as she should have in her home country. 
She became known more in the U.S. thanks to her many appearances on Happy Days as the character of Leather Tuscadero. The film looks at her career overall, showing what a wild ride it has been. I'm not sure if it's possible to spoil this film, but we won't be shying away from anything that happens in it, so you have been warned. So, Leanne, what are your memories of Susie Quattro, and what did you think of Susie Q? Well, like most American kids who grew up in the 70s, I knew Susie Quattro first as Leather Tuscadero on Happy Days, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into more. Uh, it really wasn't until I was in my 20s and going back and discovering a lot of uh, 70s glam rock that I realized she'd had this prolific music career. And I loved everything about her. As for the movie, you know, there's that old saying uh, in show business that if you love sausage, don't ever see it being made which is kind of my opinion on uh, watching documentaries on musicians I like in general. But that said, I'm really glad that this movie exists because Susie Quattro is a performer who deserves more recognition, especially here in the States. As a documentary, I wish the movie would pushed a little deeper into her personality and some of her issues, but I suspect that had less to do with the filmmakers and more to do with her guarding her own image, which is uh, pretty common among established celebrities, especially rock stars. So, Morris, how about you? What'd you think? The biggest takeaway for me from the film was that she wasn't like hugely popular in the States because as you've already gone and stated and as the film showed you, she was hugely popular here in Australia. I mean, I remember, I think as a 10 year old, one of my classmates went and brought round his copy of the debut album, which was just called Susie Quattro outside of Australia, but it was called Can to Can here. She was everywhere. You know, you watch the TV pop music shows and the newspapers, and she was the second coming of the second coming. So I just sort of presumed that she was that way over the rest of the world. And it took till this film for me to realize that she was not really much of an entity in the States. As for my own feelings about her music, I always had a copy of Can the Can, but strangely, only till about a week or so before you asked me to do this episode, I'd actually sort of gone out and bought the second and third album, uh, Quattro and Your Mama Won't Like Me, and really, really loved those. I, I think as far as the movie goes, I did really enjoy this. I mean, look, it does have a lot of the tropes of a lot of these music documentaries, you know, where you get a lot of talking heads and speak to members of the family and get to speak to admiring fans. But I think what this film does right is it never sort of judges one situation over another there's not sad music there's not music that leads you to feeling sad for instance when there's obvious conflict between the sisters or or the like i just think it's and it's not overly melodramatic when it gets to the bits about the sisters like leon i would have loved to have seen more but i think that for the type of film that it is i think it does a really really excellent job so i felt like i lived in some sort of a weird bubble when it came to music I just didn't really listen to a whole lot of rock or what was on the radio, maybe like oldie stations, those kind of things. So didn't really get into a lot of good music until later on uh, in my life. And when I first saw a Suzy Quattro album at Wax Tracks in Ann Arbor, it never dawned on me that Leather Tuscadero was anything other than a character on Happy Days. I never realized that Suzy Quattro was a thing. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, well, she must have cut this record after 
she was on Happy Days because we've all seen, we all know about celebrities that will, you know, use their stardom to become stars or try to become stars. Don Johnson as an example. And so I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, because I think even Henry Winkler had like a Fonzie album, you know, <laughs> so as did Scott Baio and Donnie Most. God, yeah, you're right. And, you know, I mean, he, he didn't even have the chops of Anson Williams, who could take any song and completely suck the soul out of it. So, one, two, three. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. Long about a Saturday night. A rubber dub, just relaxing in the tub. Thinking everything was all right. Well, I stepped out the tub, put my feet on the floor. I wrapped the towel around me and I opened the door. And then I splish, splash. I was just like, okay, yeah, I guess Leather Tuscadero had an album, and I it just took me so long to realize that she was a musician before she was on Happy Days, and I also, I made the mistake while preparing for this uh, episode to uh, go back and watch a lot of Happy Days from that fifth and sixth season. And I can't remember if uh, what season we had uh, Fonzie jumping the shark, but I feel like I was in post-shark territory. Yeah, that was definitely the era of Happy Days, where even as a kid, I was very conscious that they'd kind of given up on the concept of it being in the 50s. And we're just kind of, you know, like, like that's, that's one of the funniest things about watching her on those episodes is, I mean, she looks awesome. I'm not complaining, but she doesn't look like she existed in the time that that show was supposed to be set. No, not at all. Her backup singers did, but not her. It was funny. Like she does this gig at Arnold's and there's a talent scout at fucking Arnold's that wants to put leather and the suede on tour with Fabian. And then this whole conflict with Joni replacing one of the suede and she wanted to go with her on tour. And so they have to have Howard and Marion come and watch her and. Oh man. Yeah. That was, yeah, it was rough. And it was weird just, yeah. Cause she was doing like songs that were appropriate to the era, but then she would do uh devil gate drive. Okay. Well, it, I mean, and some of her songs did have like a little bit of a throwback quality, but it was just like, this does not fit with 1950s. If you listen to those first couple of albums, Susie Quattro or can the can, it is obvious where her influences lie. I mean, she has gone and said, I think in the film, that Elvis was her hero. Her music was always like a 70s take. This was not Shanana. It wasn't like watching Grease, although, mind you, I guess some of the, the, the music in Grease was not really like, it wouldn't have fitted in in the 50s anyway. So I don't know why I said that. Uh, but yeah, this is, she was never a 50s tribute act, but her heart and soul was in 50s rock and roll music, you know, I, I'm guessing that she was probably a big fan of, say, Eddie Cochran and the like. Having her there was appropriate. I mean, there's that moment in the film where they suggest that it was originally going to be Debbie Harry that they were going to offer the role to, and that would have been neither musically nor character-wise where they wanted the character to go. My sort of thoughts about the Happy Days Thing. And I, I, we're possibly sort of talking way earlier about Happy Days than uh, we'd meant to, but uh, as as long as we're on it, her image to that point had been as you know this 
tough, take-no-prisoners sort of rock and roll performer. I mean, you look at the front cover of that debut album, and it's it's almost frightening. You know, she's there, she's wrapped in leather, and she's got these three guys who look like they're going to bash the shit out of you rather than entertain you. And then she goes into this family-friendly show that's 50s revisionist, uh, whichever way you look at it, and, you know, she's family-friendly, and it just sort of seemed to go against the image that maybe she'd gone and cultivated on uh, those first couple of albums. I mean, I know she says a lot about what you see is what you get. This is me. You know, later on, she also says, but hey, what is also me is I'm, I'm a mother and I'm an ordinary gal. So there's lots of claims of, you know, who she was by her herself. And, um, I, I just sort of thought that maybe having her, she even said that she enjoyed doing the happy days experience and that's terrific, but, it just seemed to be like in 1975 or 76 when she did that, it, it just sort of seemed to really sort of clash with uh, those albums that she'd put out before, never mind you know, the music that she was actually performing in the show. Both of you guys brought up the family relationships, and that's so crucial to this documentary. And for me, it was one of the most striking things. I mean, I, again wasn't familiar with the pleasure seekers, the early group that the Quattro sisters had been a part of or, or made themselves. And then wasn't familiar with cradle or the way that these bands came about. And all of these interviews with her sisters are just so interesting to watch and just really sets up just such a, a fascinating portrait to hear the one sister, and I can kind of understand where she's coming from, but the one sister who's just like, I will never be a fan of Susie Quattro. And it's like, okay, I guess I can figure where you're saying that it, you can't be a fan of your sister, that she's your sister and you'll never be a fan of her. But it just, the way that she says it makes it feel like I am not a fan of Susie Quattro. And basically, like, I'm not a fan of my sister. I'm not a big admirer of my sister is how it comes off, though. I guess I might be reading too much into it. I don't think so, Mike. I think, um, the, you know, the, the elephant in the room in this movie in a lot of ways is the fact that she had a really good band with her sisters, in my opinion. I, I knew the pleasure seekers just from sort of seeking out sixties. Detroit, all the, all that kind of interesting garage rock that never really got big out of Detroit. And, um, I think that band was great. I think that the movie does a good job of showing that she did have this viable, potentially successful thing with her sisters. And the fact is she got an offer to go solo and leave them behind and she took it. And I think that's probably where the sisters, um, animosity towards her comes from. And I also think that it's, it's a, it's a little weird that she seems, Later on in the movie to, to lament not having a good relationship with her family, but you've already kind of explained why that happened. I didn't actually take away from the interviews in the film with the sisters that obviously there was, there was animosity at some stage, but like when uh, I think it was Nancy who says, I'm not a fan of my sister. She says, I love my sister but I'm not a fan. I really did take it to mean like I'm not so distant where I just sort of see her completely. I just see Susie Quattro, the image. I see her. She is my sister. That's why I am not a fan rather than I can't stand the sight of her. But of course there is, there is that moment in the film though, which really I guess was pretty shocking 
where she plays that cassette and she's kept that cassette with her all her life. And for those who haven't seen it yet, uh, there was a moment where she, I think it was in 1974, the family, knowing that she's in London, send her a tape that they've made around the Thanksgiving table and she receives it at Christmas. And it has them saying things like, well, what do you think of Susie's success? Oh, yeah, look, she, I, I'm surprised because she's not really that talented. She's a sloppy bass player. And Susie says, that really, really cut me deep. And according to what you're saying there, Leon, you know, the, the, it's understandable. They're talking from a place of hurt. And Susie, I don't know whether at the time, she thought, well, I can sort of understand this or whether she was genuinely thinking, I don't get what the problem is. I've gone off to do my own thing. Can't they be happy for me? I would have liked that dynamic maybe to have been a little bit more explored. But on the other hand, I am grateful that the film doesn't completely turn into a big melodrama, a big soap opera. So, Yeah, because you got a lot of plates are spinning in this movie because there's the family stuff. There's her career, having your own husband as part of the band. So having that family part of it, her as an alien in the UK, and then the whole idea of why is she successful every place but her own country is a, is a major theme in this, too. You know, you sit any family down and you start asking them about old issues and you're going to get an earful. So, you know, we do have to keep it in that context. I don't, I don't think that, the, um, when, when the sister makes the comment about her, um, not about her not being a fan, I think that is about not really buying into the image, which I think is very common if you do know someone, you know, personally who's had some public success. You're an example. I mean, you are a successful filmmaker. Your wife is a success, successful actress. I don't know if you would say I'm a fan of my wife or if it's just she's my wife. So I can't necessarily be a fan, you know, like have that admiration relationship that you have with someone who's in a, a public space, you know, because you get to see what that person is like when they're not on stage. It would have been interesting to have known if they would have asked the question, are you proud of your sister? What the response to that would have been, because there that's the litmus test. You know, can you, if, if they're not proud, then maybe there's still some lingering resentment, you know, pride and being a fan of two different things. I'm also fascinated by the kind of person who keeps a tape like that. I was wondering myself, I'm like, this isn't just something that they kind of recreated for this. This really sounds and feels like it's the real thing, you know, because there are other times in the documentary, obviously, they're not shooting planes coming into Australia and they're just taking a filter and shooting something now or using stock footage and then making it look like it was 1972 or whenever she does her first tour of Australia. So it's like, okay, well, that, you know, there's, there's fakery that we buy in documentaries where we're just like, okay, this is not pure. This has not been taken from archival footage. You know, this is just something that we're doing to represent something. But then, yeah, you sit down and you have that tape playing and the quotes coming up of what they're saying around the Thanksgiving table. And it's just like, wow, she kept that tape. Man, that's really something to take you down a notch every time you listen to it. That's got to be so hurtful. I just wanted to sort of like take the conversation a bit away from the family for a moment, but because you mentioned there, Mike, about what's archival and what's been set up, I think you can have something that's both. So there's this moment in the film, which I'm wondering, what is this from? There's the moment fairly early on after she's first gone to London and Mickey most is trying to work out, what do I do with her? And there's, you see them in a hotel room 
and she's sitting, I think, behind a piano or something. Or, no, she's holding her bass. And he's trying to work out with her. Hmm, I'm not sure how we can go with the arrangement of this song. Uh, you have to think about what you want to do with it. And I'll come and see you tomorrow. We'll talk a little bit more about it. And uh, we know it's definitely from that era because her hair's still frizzy. This is, you know, before she became big. So, I mean, I know that later on in the 80s, electronic press kits were a big thing. She hadn't even released a record yet. Why were they doing an electronic press kit. I mean, did such a thing even exist? I'm sort of trying to work, why was this being filmed? And given that there are a couple of shots that are edited together, it's not even like someone has a Super 8 camera and they're just recording this for its own posterity. It's edited. So I'm just, I'd really be curious to know what that footage is. Was it staged? Was it natural? And if it was natural, what was it being recorded for? It just seemed very peculiar. It seems so staged to me, especially when he walks out the door and then we just kind of like, I think there's a slow push or just like a little bit of a zoom in on her. And it's just like, okay. But yeah, you're right. It's like, was this a news segment or were they going to shoot a documentary at this time or what? Yeah, it just seemed really out of left field. Yeah, my guess based on the footage was that that was probably a documentary with a budget or some kind of TV special, maybe. But it's also like if they're staging it, there's some pretty raw moments to be staging as well. You know, like the whole thing is a little boggling. One thing that they do address throughout the entire thing is the whole idea of a woman in the 70s and being a rocker. And it it was one of those like... It just wasn't done. It wasn't nearly as common as it might be today. You know, I look at the charts and I mean, you can't call Taylor Swift a rocker or whatever, but I mean, somebody like a Taylor Swift, if you go back far enough, it's like, okay, thanks to Susie Quattro being this very strong person, strong personality, like we can have women who own their own career, their own image and are able to do this kind of stuff. So I'm so glad that they have these voices of women who I really admire. I mean, I, I was a huge L7 fan when I first heard them. Um, KT Tungstall, Debbie Harry, so many great interviews with female rock stars that say that they owe a lot to Susie Quattro and what she was able to do. There's one moment in the movie that just floors me, which is this whole thing where she's on a talk show and they have her turn around and then smack her ass. I had no idea that there was a contest called the Rear of the Year in Britain, but apparently it has something to do with that. And wow, just when they turn her around and smack her ass on TV, I was like, how far have we come? I am so glad that this doesn't happen anymore, or at least doesn't happen on TV too often. Why is it sexist? You know, the objectification of men, it doesn't diminish their economic or professional power, but when you objectify women, you get the pay gap, you get discrimination in the workplace. So I think Actually, it can women, be... Actually, women who, object, who self-objectify their bodies in entertainment tend to make more money than the women who don't, so that argument doesn't wash. I, I don't think so, and I don't think a lot of women... Well, are putting Linda them... Evangelista didn't get out of bed for less than 10 grand. I'm glad that you sent out that link to that article, Mike, because it adds a little bit of context to what we see in the film. It doesn't excuse Russell Harty's behavior, but that whole rear of the year thing, that is very much of a time. I thought that was 70s, but it turns out like that was 1982. Now, last month, I think it was, Mike, when you joined us for uh, uh, See Here, we were speaking about the kids are all right, and we saw Russell Harty 
on that program as well. And it sort of seemed like, you know, Daltrey and uh, uh, Entwistle really didn't want to have much to do with them. And he was trying to get information out of them that they didn't want to give. I sort of, I wonder what else Russell Harty has done. And then seeing this moment in the film where he just smacks her ass, I'm thinking, oh my Lord, what is going on here? And I read an interview outside of the link that you said where Susie said, if he tried that shit backstage, I would have punched him in the jaw. And I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of wondering whether punching him in the jaw on set, on the TV set, because she said I was too professional to do that. I'm wondering whether punching him in the jaw on TV would have actually been a, a bad career move at all. I think she could have gotten away with it. I imagine there would have been some people who would have seen that as unacceptable. I also wanted to look up some other things with Russell Hardy, see like what was his reputation like as an interviewer. And I saw uh, an interview that he did if you want to call it that, with Grace Jones. And, okay, fair enough, Grace Jones does have the reputation for being maybe a little bit difficult in interviews, but, you know, really he treated her patronizingly and so she gave it back to him. And it was it was a terrible interview. So I thought, well, you know, maybe he's just generally crap with um, pop stars or, or maybe with interviews in general because then I saw Grace Jones with Joan Rivers, and also, I saw her with um, Don Lane, who was like an American Tonight Show interviewer who worked in Australia. And she was perfectly fine with both of them, funny and vivacious and, and humorous and told great stories, but just with Russell Harty. So, I don't know if there's anyone English who's listening to uh, this podcast, please write in and tell us, you know, was Russell Harty an asshole in general? Either way, I think that's such an important moment in this film because, you know, lest we sit here in 2020 and get too critical in hindsight, we have to remember that, as Mike hinted at, she was such a pioneer. The idea of a female rock star, and not only a female rock star, but to be this woman who is dressing in what's basically bondage gear and is acting tough and, you know, I sincerely believe was capable of punching that man in the jaw. She probably would have been labeled as difficult and, you know, banned from show business back then. She was really navigating uncharted waters and that I watched that, that moment. And, you know, I, I, it's interesting that you, you read up on him because I didn't know much about him, but either way, I just, I watched that and I thought like, this guy's an ally. These are the people promoting her. Like, imagine what it was like behind the scenes or the, you know, the people who hated her just for existing, you know, it's like mad respect, Susie. Oh, when she talks about going from radio station to radio station during the, the American days, and that's how you got your records play. And her husband uh, at the time was saying, you know, oh yeah, to, to get your records played, you'd bring the DJs a whole suitcase full of cocaine. That's the only way they would maybe play your record. I don't think there's any Possibly, uh, apart from our NPR DJs, I don't think there's any DJ in Detroit right now that I respect at all. They all just come across as big old yahoos, you know, and like there's to think about the shit that she probably put up with these guys who think that they have a little bit of power because they're like on a fucking, you know, backwater radio station in Boise, Idaho or something. What would that have been like? That must have been horrible. I can't remember what the expression was, but, I'm, but I know that. We've heard stories about graft and corruption being a big Payola. thing in American radio. Payola, thank you. Uh, since the early days of rock and roll. So I guess that was par for the course. You know, it was just an accepted thing. I'd love to know where there was a point. I mean, if there's been a point 
where that payola actually stopped. In this day and age where more and more people are listening to their music through other means, whether even getting your new music on the radio is even a thing anymore. I'm, I'm talking aside from what we call here the public access stations or or your college radio stations, which seem to be the only things that might play something new. Everything else is just tried and true. Well, I've spent a little bit of time with um, some guys who sort of came right before me in the in the film, TV, entertainment, whatever industry. I I worked behind the scenes for a long time, and um, you hear stories about about the suitcases of cocaine and such. And um, the reigning wisdom seems to be that payola for the most part, went to MTV. And then as the corporations figured out how to really micromanage every step of the formula, the idea of a person sort of organically growing as a performer and coming to you and getting discovered pretty much got thrown out the window. It still happens, especially with people like rappers and stuff. But, um, you know, the, the story I always got is that, uh, the, the DJ is the all powerful, um, tastemaker has been long gone for several decades. I can't even imagine most of the DJs these days even choose their own records. You know, I'm sure there's nobody that goes in now other than apart from the, the folks that you mentioned, Morris, that go in and like grab the stack of records and start flipping through. And they're like, okay, I'm going to play these on my show. It's got to be all just pre-programmed with their little breaks and, you know, okay, off I go. I'm going to talk for 20 minutes about whatever comes through on the teletype, you know, the AP or whatever. Cause that's the thing too, is there are so many times where I'll sit down in the morning or, or, or even before I go to bed at night and I'll read some news stories. And then sure thing, the next morning, if you turn on the radio, you're going to hear the same five headlines across every single news organization or every single DJ is going to be like, Oh, did you hear about this wacky guy down in Florida who did this? And it's like, Oh my God. It, it just sounds like I love when they do those things on say like, uh, uh, the daily show or on uh, John Oliver's show, um, last week tonight where he'll just cut together all of the news clips that are the exact same story. You could do the exact exact same thing if you took a day of radio DJs and just listened to every single morning drive time show, you would hear the exact same stories in the exact same language. And then they would go, and now call us and tell us your great stories. And it's like, oh, great. Thanks. It raises an interesting point about Susie Quattro, which is if, if you look at her, not only did she have this image that, you know, everyone is obviously influenced by someone else, but it really was as far as I can tell, like a very original look, she may have seen girl on a motorcycle a few times, but you know, there really, there really is a sense of this. You know, I remember even the first time I like sort of saw one of her albums going, wow, like where did this come from? And then to be a bass player, I got to say like the idea of like the lead singer playing bass and, and then being a woman doing it again. I don't think that was a formula. That was really all her own invention. I have dual feelings about this. I mean, yes, she was hugely important. And obviously from the film, there's moments where they show the other musicians further on down the line who gave her the respect that she deserved and she obviously craved. The film does sort of go make a token point, I think, early on by saying that, you know, there were uh, musicians like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Christine McVie who had um, – come before her and the film does say we're not going to make the point that she was the first female musician to to be to be strong but i would have liked to have seen a little bit more kudos given to i mean like even people like you know wanda jackson 
a 50s rock and roller and uh, Aretha Franklin and Nina Simone, two really, really strong female uh, singers and musicians. They paved a hell of a lot of ground. And even though Carol Kay was not a singer in the public eye, but she was a strong female bass player who really had to hold her own amongst many male musicians. And she got their respect because she did the job. And I'd be surprised if uh, Susie wasn't a fan of any of those people. And yes, she came up with something that was fresh, uh, but I'd have liked to have seen a little bit more talked about those who came before and paved the way for her as much as she paved the way in a rock and roll sense for uh, the musicians that you've already gone to mention, Mike. Oh, I agree. I, I, I think I was referring more to um, her image, you know, the idea of this woman in the leather suit playing the bass. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. I would have loved to have seen a little bit more. Uh, Tina Turner is a great missing link in that list as well. The era that we grew up in, I mean, seeing a woman playing a bass in a band was at least, you know, as a fan of alternative music was not, that was like de rigueur, you know, I'm uh, thinking like Sonic Youth and Smashing Pumpkins and the, the Breeders slash uh, the Pixies. And it's just like, OK, yeah, that that's the thing to the point where it was almost a stereotype. Well, OK, yeah, you put the girl in the bass. I don't know why that was. You know, but I think maybe even White Zombie might have had a female bass player as well. And it was just like, OK, yeah, that that's cool. Her. And that freaking huge bass. I mean, I kept trying to picture her setting that thing down. It probably would have come up to at least her neck. It just looked almost as tall as she is. And just, yeah, she she could play the shit out of that bass. And I was so glad when they finally figured out, okay, we're going to feature the bass in these songs and make this her instrument. Because otherwise, they were like they do with a lot of music mixes. They were just burying the bass. It was just, they were carrying the load of the percussion and it wasn't doing that much on its own, but she could really make that thing sing. I have a theory that that plays a little bit into why she was a bigger hit in the UK and, and I believe Australia, because there was this real bassy bottom heavy brand of glam rock. I'm thinking of like Slade or the Sweet. Bands like that that were known in the U.S., but they were never big here the way that, say, a Led Zeppelin or the Stones or, you know, a lot of these other big rock acts were. And I think that her sound, again, kind of back to the continuum and the influences, like she was very much either influenced or otherwise like playing to that genre, which featured like a really heavy bass, really that, that great sort of like deep Tom sound. I'm getting in, you know, into audio engineer stuff here a little bit, but you know, like it's just, I, I'm a huge fan of that. And I guess that kind of leads us to the, the question about her not having huge success here. My perception about why she hit it really big in Australia has less to do with the glam rock era. And I know that she was actually said she never saw herself as a glam rock artist. And I probably on the whole tend, tend to agree with her on that. But in Australia from like the late sixties into the early seventies, the big thing, if you were to go see a band in the clubs, uh, or, you know, listen to the radio was heavy blues based music. I mean, our version of, Woodstock was uh, the Sunbury Music Festival. Sunbury's like a little town just maybe a few kilometers outside of Melbourne. And the Sunbury festivals in the early 70s, I think for three, four years, were absolutely huge. And there were bands that played no bullshit, no nonsense 
heavy blues bass and boogie music. So you're thinking of bands like Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and Buster Brown, Lobby Lloyd, Chain and Carson and the Kevin Borich Express. And then later on in the 70s, bands that were absolutely huge, bands like Cold Chisel and the Angels and uh, Jojo Zepp and the Falcons, who I know you're familiar with, Mike, through the uh, 20th Century Oz soundtrack. All those bands were part of the Australian top 40 uh, and, and general part of the musical landscape. So here comes Susie Quattro, who's playing her brand of rock and roll, and it fits in completely with the music that we were listening to from our own backyard. So it makes complete sense why she was popular here. I can't say for certain why she wasn't popular in the States, unless except for your theory, Leon, that they associated her more with the glam rock era and glam didn't seem to be a, a big thing in the States. But yeah, so, I mean, some of the glam bands were very big here, like Sweet. Sweet was huge over here. I, I tend to sort of think of her more in the blues boogie sort of bag, if you want to call it that. But what I like, especially coming back to the albums that I've been listening to over the last few weeks, plus what we hear in the film, is that she didn't want to stick with the one thing. So the first couple of albums, that's the image that we have of her, you know, the blues and boogie sort of thing. But by the time we get to the third album, Your Mama Won't Like Me, which I've had like a month to live with now, she was obviously digging into funk music. I mean, it was, there was still something of, you know, what she was doing before, but like her, her drummer and her own bass playing, uh, they're really sort of grooving on, on, uh, maybe on her Motown roots. I mean, I guess it's a little bit more dirty than the Motown sound, but that album has some glorious funk in it. And then, you know, as we see later on, like the, the next, couple of albums down the line, she's sort of going for more a poppy, gentle acoustic sound. And then later on in the film, I guess we'll talk more about it then, is uh, she explored musical theatre. And one of the things that she says in the film, I'm not having anyone put me in a bag. You know, my husband thinks that I'm just going to be this type of musician, but I want to explore a whole bunch of other things. And it, it really, as early as 75 or 76, when Your Mama Don't Like Me came out, that was already evidence that she was wanting to try something different. And obviously she says, I don't want to do the leather Tuscadero thing anymore because they're going to get the impression that that's all I can do. And I think that's as much associated with those first two albums, a, a much gentler friend, family friendly version of that, but still associated with that tough leather image. She was ready to do something else. And so a huge respect to her for, uh, for doing that. Yeah, I found that really admirable. And, you know, getting back a little bit as from the American perspective and someone who is a big fan of, of 70s rock, I like to say, uh, again, I can't speak for Australia, but if you look at the UK, like in the early 70s, I like to say that the UK went glitter and America was going denim. And if you look at the mainstream, like who was a real superstar in America in the 70s, it ended up being like the Eagles and this real kind of middle of the road, you know, vaguely countryish, but without any sort of edge. Like, you know, like it, I really think that she had an image that was, uh, they, it, it's an overused phrase, but really ahead of its time in terms of what people were receptive to, or at least what we were being sold. For shits and giggles, I just put in, you know, top songs of 1975. Now, granted, I like a lot of these songs, but when you look at the 
choice of what was out there in the top 40, what actually broke through Rhinestone Cowboy, Shining Star by Earth, Wind and Fire, a fucking fantastic song. I'm Not in Love by 10CC, Tony Orlando and Dawn, BJ Thomas, uh, Major Harris, Casey and the Su- Sunshine Band. So it's like we're doing like Gordon Lightfoot. We're doing like singer songwriters. We, we've got, you know, feel like making love by bad company that that's not that heavy, but it's heavier than other things. And then you've got like, you know, you were saying like funk, like, uh, that's the way of the world by earth, wind and fire. And we've got disco with Casey and the sunshine band jive talking by, uh, the Bee Gees. But that's also the fucking era of, and, you know, I said I wasn't going to put anything down, but that's the era of feelings by Morris Albert. I mean, one of the worst songs ever. So must have been so difficult because, yeah, this just wasn't as hard as you could get. Punk rock was still around the corner. Um, hard rock really wasn't at that great of a point right now. Prog rock was kind of a thing over here, funk and disco. So yeah, it was, uh, it would have been tough for somebody to, to break through with what she had. What you're talking about really plays into a much larger continuum in American music and really how Americans treat, quote, pop music versus the rest of the world, where it's always been a little throwaway. It's always been like, yeah, that was cool, but here's the new thing you should buy. Incredibly American attitude. And if you look, America culturally has been absolutely amazing at inventing musical genres and then throwing them away until some other country picks it up and does something awesome with it and sells it back to us. And I mean, that's going back really, I mean, you know, to the Beatles at least, you know, and, and she's just, it makes complete sense to me that she would get much more recognition abroad because this country has just always been about, well, what can I sell you? And particularly in the seventies, I think like, once again, we were making all this great, really interesting rock in the sixties. And then as the industry became more and more an industry in, in, in the States, at least it was really becoming about like, well, what, what kind of feel good thing can we sell that everybody's going to enjoy? Um, again, back to the happy days thing, really. <laughs> Yeah, you started Happy Days, you ended Happy Days. It all comes back in a big circle. Wasn't that the period where Kiss was just starting to make it big? I mean, yeah, Kiss Alive, was that 1975 or 76? And they were pretty big, like about, you know, the time, well, I mean, okay, I guess, you know, Susie Q was coming in earlier than, um, than before they broke big, but Kiss showed that a loud rock band could still sort of break through the singer-songwriter or the middle-of-the-road things that maybe you know, Barry Manilow or Barbara Streisand were putting down. You know, Kiss came up earlier because I, w- I was trying to think of, well, who was doing some version of what might be considered glam in America, and Kiss was really the ones that sort of picked that mantle up, though – Born and raised in the southern suburbs of Detroit, like, I'm a Kiss fan. Like, but I got it. But in terms of the actual, like, uh, in terms of heaviness, if we're really rating those songs, like, they, they were still, like, the way that Kiss was recorded was not, you know, on par with what ACDC was doing, you know, or what the suite was doing just in terms of sort of sonic impact, you know. But yeah, I think you're, you're correct. They were like one of the only ones, them, Alice Cooper, you know, who Alice Cooper would tell you that Kiss ripped him off completely. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, you know, like in, in terms of like taking that thing and kind of making a heavy performance oriented thing, it was happening. I'm just, I'm speaking more in terms of like when I talk about the industry with a capital I and what was, what was being sold. I think Mike's correct that it was, there was this constant quest in the seventies to get as middle of the road as possible, I guess, because you could sell more records that way. And, and punk, I think in a huge, at least in the States was a huge reaction to that. Well, and don't forget too that the only, top 10 or number one hit the kiss had was fucking beth you know so it's it's like their their songs were selling and they had massive fans i think they called themselves the kiss army but yet it's like fucking disco duck is you know number one song in the country at the time so it's just like oh that's the thing it's so frustrating when you're watching suzy q the documentary and you're seeing like this song number one in the uk number one in sweden number one in portugal didn't chart in the u.s and it's like yeah, no, it was tough to break through because we had Don't Pull Your Love Out on Me Baby or the Rubber Band Man or these kind of things were the ones in the, you know, the top 40 hits of the year. So yeah, stuff like the things that we're talking about, the sweet fucking New York dolls, kiss, any of these things, they're not going to break through. They're not going to cut through the noise of, of top 40 radio. There would have probably been a lot of regional hits. I mean, yeah, sure, there was not going to be as many rock and roll bands that were going to sweep the whole country. But, uh, I mean, like you know, one of my beloved collections of music is the Nuggets box set that Lenny Kay assembled. They're all regional hits. I mean, there might have been like a, a couple that sort of broke out of just one state, but it seems like though these were more – here are the songs that people forgot – but it seems like there, there, there were always pockets of people who, uh, as long as they could put on a guitar and or, or get behind a drum kit, get you know, and play the bass, would still sort of love what the, the possibilities that rock and roll music could do. And um, but yeah, look, it, it, I guess it is a shame that uh, America as a whole, as you put it like that, went by into that. There's another piece to that puzzle, which we've touched on a little bit, because if I think about 70s rock, yes, rock was huge in America. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of that was bands like the Stones and Led Zeppelin, but there was an enormous amount of really great, what they call classic rock now coming out in that era. And when I think about like a classic, who was making really great, innovative, heavy rock and roll in the 70s, I think of Van Halen. And then what I also think of is how incredibly, entrenched all that was in a very male macho boys club kind of thing which don't get me wrong as a little kid as a little boy i absolutely loved it but i can also see that there is a sexism that has not gone away that was a million times worse back then and i think there really was a really negative response in america to the idea of any woman uh, who's not a soul singer or, you know, a Leslie Gore type or, or a nice, sweet Carol King type. You know, I don't, I think that there was really a lot of resentment almost toward any woman who dared to get up and claim to be a rocker, as we've seen with, lest we forget the runaways as well. She's talking about at one point how they come back from a tour as the pleasure seekers and it's like, okay, we come back to Detroit and now we've got, you know, the MC5 and, you know, you think of other, um, uh, artists from that time and you can sit there and go, okay, MC5, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, um, you know, Bob Seeger, uh, Ted Nugent. And it's just, yeah, boys after boys after boys after boys. 
given that you know, punk is not necessarily my specialty, but it does seem to me that the role of punk music did level the playing field somewhat. But maybe that's once again not from an American perspective. Uh, but yeah, certainly I think in, in England, we're, um, well, mind you, another American expat who had to take on a band of British musicians. Uh, I'm thinking Chrissy Hyde of the Pretenders in, in the States, you know, Patti Smith, uh, Susie Sue. I, I'm imagining that punk in general sort of thought, well, you know, fuck that patriarchy. We're just going to strap on the guitars and we're going to make beautiful noise. But yeah, in terms of the classic rock, yeah, maybe there was far less of that. How many classic rock songs are about girls just turning 17? <laughs> the opening song to the first album by my favorite band ever, unfortunately. I never would have associated her with glitter because I, I don't know. I just, um, I guess the leather and stuff. I just, uh, I mean, and I have nothing against glitter rock. There were so many great glitter rockers, but I just, I never would have put her in that box. But then, like she says, she doesn't want to be in a box. That is an interesting thing about the runaways. I had never associated, so I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but I had never associated her image with the runaways as strongly as they make the case for in the movie. And just that I never have, I guess, because growing up with Joan Jett being a solo artist, Joan Jett, like I wasn't even that familiar with the runaways. And so when they were talking about how Joan Jett would get approached by people who insisted that she was Susie Quattro or that Susie Quattro had done the things that Joan Jett did, it just it boggled my mind. I really just never would have confused those two. I find it interesting how they mention in the film that Joan Jett wanted to be a clone of uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, look, yeah, I guess like you, Mike, if I would have sat down and thought about it, I thought, oh, yeah, I guess she probably would have been a fan. But the, the level of idol worship just, wow, yeah, I, I never would have guessed that. And actually just sort of coming back to the happy days thing, that's where Susie, I guess it's not where she ended her acting career, but it's sort of where it stopped at that time. She didn't sort of decide to make a, a lot more of a thing about it. And there's that movie in the 80s that uh, Paul Schrader wrote and directed called Light of Day, which features Joan Jett. And I was sort of thinking while doing prep for this, I reckon I would have liked to have seen Susie Quattro in the part that Joan Jett did playing alongside Michael Fox. Is that a film that you gents have seen? Oh, yes. I have not seen it. Uh, this is a little bit of a side note, but um, fun fact, uh, that film was shot in Cleveland, and there's a scene where there's a new wave band opening for them, fronted by Trent Reznor. That's true. Yes. Yes, it is. There's a documentary about Joan Jett, and I don't remember the whole Susie Quattro thing coming up in there. There's also a documentary about The Runaways called Edge Play that I still haven't watched yet, and I'd be very curious to, because... So this is kind of very much an aside, but a few years ago, one of the former members of the Runaways was on Jeopardy and becoming this kind of a mini Jeopardy champ. You know, she was no James Holtower, but she was really good. And I was just like, wow. And then they started talking about how she was in a rock band. 
and I went back and I looked up her and what she had done and stuff and just uncovering all of the garbage that she had put up with and to the point where saying the manager of the runaways was uh had uh, raped her and just all the shit that she had gone through and then who backed her up on this stuff and it was like I don't think that Joan Jet backed her up on it. And so it's just like, ooh, I wonder if this edge play will get into those things because it sounds like a fascinating story, but also a really horrific story. We actually covered edge play on uh, C here a few years back. And, um, yeah, it is, it is pretty interesting. I would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more, but maybe that's because I'm, I don't necessarily know that much about the runaways. So maybe there's some things I wanted to know more, but yeah, certainly it did reveal that there was a lot of sordid stuff going on and they had to put up with a hell of a lot of shit. So yeah. Once again, if you like sausage, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Kim Fowley in particular is, is a, is by all accounts, a foul human being. So, uh, yeah, if you get, if you get into the runaway story in any depth, you're going to start hearing some nasty things about him. Yep, that's exactly who I was talking about. I couldn't remember the gentleman's name, though he doesn't sound like a gentleman. You know, there's another thing that, that occurs to me, which is I don't doubt that Joan Jett was a huge fan of Susie Quattro. Why wouldn't she be? And also just as as a sort of, you know, someone who came right before and someone to sort of emulate or at least um, be inspired by. I also think it's funny that, again, back to the kind of inherent sexism in that in that era that there is this sense that people have like that there can be only one that if I, you know, that, Oh, here's this female rocker. That must be Joan Jett. Whereas like how many guys in the eighties looked like Rob Halford, at least in terms of, of what they were wearing, you know, how many, how many guitar players emulated Eddie Van Halen? Like there were a million of these, you know, whether they were inspired or ripoffs, we were, we were fine with, you know, 20 bands in the eighties that looked like Motley Crue. But as soon as there's like two tough women, fronting bands it's like well what how can that be i'm sure that uh some of our former soul singers have been mistaken for other soul singers in the past where it's just like oh yeah you're the guy from uh you're a pip right no no i'm no i'm one of the four tops oh yeah i love your song papa was a rolling stone listen that gets into black lives in general which is a whole other podcast to say the least oh and it was jackie fuchs who i was thinking of who went by jackie fox um when she was in the runaways and i do see that she is in edge play so i uh, that's more reason for me to see it morris i know that you had put out a question on a, a group recently asking about performers who have done musical theater and i did find it fascinating i would have loved to have seen Susie quattro as annie oakley and annie get your gun it just looked like an amazing performance i'm wondering whether there's somewhere on YouTube or on DVD, somewhere like a, a, a full performance of that. Because we get a little bit of footage there, but that might have been just for a news story. And here's Susie Quattro. Remember the leather? Well, she's now putting on a dress. I did put out a question in the Steve Hoffman Music Forum to see what people would come up with. And, uh, I mean, look, besides Susie Quattro, the only other one who I could – the only two people I could remember were both associated with the Pirates of Penzance. So Linda Ronstadt famously did uh, a season or however long, I don't know where, if it was on Broadway for Pirates of Penzance. And here locally, uh, a singer in the 70s who was beloved here, I don't think really known much outside of Australia, maybe in Europe, was a guy called John English. And I mean, he'd started out in Jesus Christ Superstar, but once he'd sort of gotten through that, he was like this big rock star 
uh, in Australia of the 70s. And then he just decided to go into musical theatre. And uh, he was a good actor, so he absolutely owned the Pirates of Penzance. People weren't talking about anyone else in the cast, just John English. But the other, uh, some of the other people who had been mentioned in the forum that I can remember were Peter Noon of Herman's, Herman and the Hermits, who uh, I'm presuming took the, the Pirate King role that John English did in uh, Pirates of Penzance. Uh, Paul Stanley, having done Phantom of the Opera, and I think we discussed that, Mike, with, with you on uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park episode. Mickey Dolans had a part, apparently, in um, the Tim Rice, Elton John script of Aida. That was pretty amazing to to read. But I think a lot of the responses that people came up with tended to be more in the Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical type thing, which, apart from Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah, is certainly not rock. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat or Productions of Grease, which is playing on popular music styles. I mean, it's not pop music. Well, it's not rock music, certainly, that would be that would work in its own right, but it's not musical theatre. I was sort of like looking for more responses in terms of uh, things that have been written for, the, you know, like Les Miserables or people had gone and done, a rock star who'd gone and done Oklahoma or South Pacific or West Side Story, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm really surprised that people didn't come up with more responses like that. And yet, um, there must have been more people like Susie Quattro who'd gone into traditional musical theatre. And and really, just that thing in the film where she said that she was going to write her own music, or she was going to write her own musical about Tallulah Bankhead. I loved that. She just sort of thought, well, you know, I've, I've already shown that I can act in something. I've shown that I can sing music that is not what you normally associate with me. And guess what? I'm going to write music. I'm going to write a play and I'm going to write the music and I'm going to star in it. And they went to some great pains in the film to sort of show that, you know, Tallulah Bankhead and Annie Oakley were very much characters simpatico with Susie Quattro. So I, I absolutely love that. I love finding that out. And once again, you know, coming back to what we were discussing early on, in the film about, you know, did the film go far enough? And, yeah, maybe another half hour would have been great, but I really do think that there are a lot of things in this film that I just came away thinking, I did not know that. And really, that was that was fantastic. I, I just loved learning that sort of stuff, that she had that connection to other forms of music and something I wouldn't necessarily have associated her with. Yeah, the one that popped to my mind when we were talking about this was I knew that Joan Jett had been in a cast of Rocky Horror Picture Show, I also so assumed that she would have been at least Frankenfurter, but she ended up being Columbia. So I'm surprised that she didn't have a bigger part. Not that there are any small parts in that movie, but just, uh, or production, I should say. But, um, I, I know that I've seen women play Frankenfurter. So I assume that she would be that, you know, like kind of build a, you know, build up to her performance, build up to her coming on screen rather than her being uh, one of Frank's helpers. I'm married to a professional actor, so I have a little bit of insight into this. That could very much be um, a business decision as well. The idea of taking risks on um, people who, shall we say, are accustomed to a rock star lifestyle versus an incredibly disciplined um, Broadway lifestyle and what it really takes in terms of the hours and the rehearsals and to put it in after, you know, night after night. It's I know people who've who've done Broadway shows and it's really 
you know, it's, it's like being a, a professional athlete. It's, it's really above and beyond. So I wouldn't be surprised if with some of that sort of boutique casting, it might be uh, on the production side where they're a little hesitant to take a chance on somebody like that. It always floors me when I hear those stories of Broadway actors that are in two productions in one night where they'll do a bit part in one and then run across the street and change and be in another production. Cynthia Nixon. Yeah, she did that. Who I only just saw last night watching Amadeus. I, I had to sort of look twice and think, is that her? Oh, my God. So it is. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a quick break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First, we're going to hear from Susie Quattro herself, and then we'll hear from some of the folks behind Susie Q, director Liam Furminger and producer Tate Brady. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2, The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the script. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well... AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener. Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts. Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Ms. Quattro, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I've been a fan of yours for a while, especially because you come from Detroit, which is where I'm at right now. And I'm curious, where did you grow up in the city? I was born and raised in Ghost Point Woods, you know, suburb, and then we moved to Ghost Point Farms when I was about 14. And then we were in that suburb. I was only ever in two houses. The one in Ontario Road in Ghost Point Woods is like my heart. I've left my heart there. And then we moved to a place on Allard Road, just by um, Severn Mile and Mac, you know, around there. 
What kind of role did music play when you were growing up? My father worked for General Motors in the daytime, and in the evening he was a musician. He had five kids, and we were all very musical. We all played various instruments. I myself play classical piano and percussion. I read, write, and play both instruments. And when I was 14 and we started our first band, it, you know, I tell the story every, it was after seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And, uh, everybody, all the girls were on the phone, two sisters, one of my sisters and another girl that lived down the road. We were talking after the Beatles on the phone and we decided to form a band and everybody chose an instrument and I didn't speak up quick enough. So it was said to me, you're going to play bass. And I said, okay. And lucky for me, when I switched on, put it on, my dad gave me, um, for my first bass, it's, it's amazing. I make musicians green. I had a 1957 Fender Precision given to me to learn on. It's, it was written in the stars. I was going to be a serious bass player, you know? Do they make smaller basses? Because that thing looks like it's as tall as you are. I know. And when people say that, I just want to punch them. You know, it just doesn't occur to me. I was, I said to my dad, do you have a bass? Yes, I do. Can I have it? Yes, you can. He gave it to me. I didn't know those smaller basses. So really, because I didn't know it, I just learned on that. And when I play a smaller one now, it feels like a toy. But no, I didn't know. And I don't care. I like the big bass. I like the long neck. I like the heavy body. It just suits me perfect. Most people that know me say it looks like I was born playing a bass guitar. You said that you could read and write music. Did your dad teach you or did you actually have formal training? I had formal training in percussion and piano. Self-taught on bass. And I play guitar as well. So properly trained percussion, piano, and then self-taught bass. And I play enough guitar to write songs. And I'm not a good guitar player, though, because I was one of these unusual bass players that didn't fail on guitar and then go to bass, you know. And a lot of them did, but not me. I just went to the bass. When I was young, I used to get a big, long broom and put rubber bands around it and pretend to uh, pluck a, a standard bass, believe it or not. Um, so that was always in my wavelength. And also, what I always remember is all the family trips we took, which were numerous, because, you know, five kids, you're not going to go on a plane, it's going to be too expensive. A lot of them were car trips, and we always had sing songs. And my dad would always be going, doom, ba-doom, 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 doom, doom. But I used to think, damn, he's got the best part. So I always had this in my head. I'm a natural bass player. Just It's just natural instrument for me. How did you get approached to be a subject of a documentary all about you? Uh, well, there was an aborted documentary about 18 years ago by a good friend of mine. She was actually a bass player for a very short time with the Runaways, Vicky Blue. Uh, we became good friends, and we started to do one. And then some of the people, actually one of the people that I don't want to give any names up, but one of the people that was in it being interviewed decided that she didn't like how she looked on camera and refused permission, taking the guts out of the documentary. So, yeah, it wasn't very nice. So that one kind of got aborted. We're still good friends, so Vicky and I, it wasn't my fault. And then this guy, Liam Furmager, he contacted me about four and a half years ago now, and he said he would... uh like to do a documentary on me. So I said, I didn't know who he was. I said, tell me about yourself. He said to me, I got to tell you right away, though, I'm not a fan. And I kind of went, oh, that was surprising. And, and he said, um, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. He said, I like your music. It's just I'm not a fan. So I went, oh, okay, fair enough. That's okay. And then I said, well, if you're not a fan, then why do you want to do this documentary? And he said, 
because when I saw you talking on a television show, I found you fascinating. So I knew I, I knew I had found my guy. He would be objective. He would be honest. He would be strong about what he thought. And even if we clashed a bit, you know, I was going to get the honest, no holds barred, raw documentary that I wanted, the truth. I wanted that, and I knew he would give that to me. It took about four years to make the documentary. He went everywhere, you know? Well, yeah. How is that working with him and then also seeing your life? I mean, gosh, you've been in this business for so long and then seeing it all just kind of taken down to like 90 minutes or so. It doesn't seem like 90 minutes. It seems like it lasts for six days when you watch it because it's your life up there. So you're like going, oh, my God. It's quite – it's it's a strange reaction. You know, you you almost want to run away. <laughs> it's it's just strange to see your life up on the screen. You know, the, some of the things people said, they just humbled me. Um, I was crying half the time when I was watching it. And, you know, some some of the things made me hurt. Some of them made me laugh. Some of them made me smile. It was warts and all, and it, it affects me every time I watch it. If, if you were to see your life on the screen, you'd be the same. You just kind of go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I did all that. Oh, my God. And somebody says something nice, you go, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, you're forever going, oh, my God. <laughs> Full disclosure, I uh, am a child of the 70s, so my first exposure to you was on Happy Days. So I knew that you had acted in that. And then I'm a fan of Midsummer, and I see you on that, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that she had worked more. And then I looked up your filmography, and I'm just like, wow, you've done so much acting. And then to find out that you've written books and just your radio show, just so many things. And it's like they just get barely touched on in the doc. It just adds to your full character of just how inventive you are. I'm an artiste. I have to put it that way. I didn't get in the business for a minute. I got in it for a lifetime. You know, entertaining is my big thing, and rock and roll obviously is in my heart and in my soul. But I always knew that I would not be boxed in, and I would do whatever this big ball of wax that is called being an artist it, it will allow me to do, you know? And I hope I have the sense not to try to do something I can't. But all the things I've done, they've all been about communicating, creating, and entertaining. You know, so it's all the same ball of wax. I use the same instinct when I'm acting a role as I do when I go on the stage and play a song or when I'm writing a poem or writing a song. It's all the same thing, really, for me. It's just called being an artist. Was Happy Days, was that your first acting gig? Yes, can you believe it? I said to Ron Howard, because I was curious, you know, I, I remained friends with all these people. I asked him one time on the phone because I was curious to his answer. I said, did it ever seem to you like I was a brand new actress on the show? And he said, absolutely not. You felt like an old pro and that you'd been there from the start of the series. And I went, that's exactly what I felt like. That's strange. It's strange how that happened. I, I guess I just slotted in, didn't I? Well, it just made sense. I mean, as soon as they introduced Leather Tuscadero, it's like, oh, yeah, well, obviously it's... Uh... I know, crazy. Part of the show. And it was so natural, wasn't it? Yeah. Where did the uh, the hip slap finger gun thing come from? In, in a lot of these shows, they try to come up with what they call in the business a bit of business. So it's a finger snap or it's a salute or it's something, you know, like Ron Howard used to go, I found my thrill, you know. So everybody has a bit of business and somebody suggested that and I tried a few things and then I went, don't, don't, and that one felt right to me. And I can't believe that they were offering you your own show, your own spinoff. Yes, but I had done enough. I had done three seasons as another Tuscadero, and I 
didn't want to be typecast. Again, I won't be boxed in. So that's enough. That's enough of that character. And I was right because I went on to do, as you saw on the dock, so many other things, you know. Are you still doing radio shows? I left about a year ago. I did 15 years on BBC Radio 2, which is the biggest station in Europe. I was one of the most popular DJs, but I left because I found out that they were reluctant to play my new albums because I was a DJ on their station, and that made me angry. And I said, I'm an artist first, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go. That's not to say I won't go back and do some more things. I probably will, but um, now they're playing my records, you know, so I didn't like that. Yeah, I didn't like it, but I do like doing radio. What do you think it is about Australia that makes you so popular there? I don't know. People have always asked me that. Japan and Australia were always my two biggest markets. I mean, you know, I've, I've had number ones in every country, but Australia is particularly good. Um, I don't know what it is, and I get asked that by Australian people, too. There's something about us, me and them, that we just connected from day one. Um, they've taken me in as one of their own. They understand me. We've grown up together. We've kind of have, a, have had a love affair since day one. I always say we are lovers, and we should never get married. What do you feel your relationship is with England? Because you've been over there, what, more than half your life? I don't know how it happened. You know, I didn't plan this. I, I had two offers um, in, uh, in the same week, one from Electra Records, and they saw the band, Cradle, and they didn't like the band at all, and they offered me a solo contract. Mickey Most came in the same week to, to uh, record at Motown. He saw the band, he didn't like the band, and he only wanted me. So uh, Electra wanted me to go to New York and get a guy band around me and become the next Janis Joplin. Mickey Most said, come to England, I'll put a boy band around you, and I will make you into the first Susie Quattro. So that's kind of like a no-brainer, right? And I came here, and it just took about 18 months before I had success. So in all that 18 months, I'm putting down roots, you know? And um, then I fell in love with my guitar player, so putting down roots again. And I ended up just just staying. It, it wasn't planned. And now my kids are English and, you know, whatever, but... I'm always, as you can hear, I don't lose my accent. I am an American in England. I always will be. But I do like it here. I do like it. I love it where I live and travel all the time. I come back a lot to America. I always toured there. Been back there a few times lately. I did several radio shows from there, documentaries. Uh, I had my 60th in Detroit, my 65th in Detroit. I got the uh, Michigan Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Award. I got the Shevox of Fame in January in L.A., and then I went in Texas and got the Woman of Valor Award. So I've been back and forth quite a bit. You know, it's not like I don't come home. I was so glad to see Alice Cooper in the documentary. I can't imagine what it was like touring with him when you were both so young. Well, it was welcome to my nightmare. We did 85 shows. <laughs> I, should, I mean it. I mean it nicely. Um, we've known each other a very long time. He always calls me his little sister. Did I read right that you were now learning German? I'm, I'm uh, married to a German man uh, for 27 years now, and we actually live in separate countries. He lives in Hamburg, and I live in England, and we go back and forth, which is great, except when there's a pandemic, and then it's not so great. So we were two and a half months apart. You know, that's not good. But um, now I'm going there again uh, at the end of this month because I went there for my 70th birthday. And then I had to come back to the UK and quarantine for two weeks, and now I'm going back again. So, and I don't speak German though. I mean, he's never spoken German with me. He always speaks English. Are you still touring? Nonstop. I did 85 shows last year. I had the one of the 
busiest year since the 70s. Was certainly high as a kite. My album No Control came out, which is, I think, one of my finest albums. Got absolute rave reviews around the world. I've never had such reviews. They were dissecting the songs and quoting lyrics back to me. And I did it, uh, wrote and produced it with my son, which was unexpected. We didn't know it was going to happen. We just thought we were having some fun. And all of a sudden, it was serious. Uh, my documentary came out, again, to rave reviews. And I mean rave. It's gone all over the world very successfully. I'm working on the movie of my life now. Of course, I'm not gigging right now. But I think if it goes ahead, the gigs are going to start again in September. So I work all the time. I am a working artist. That's what I am. And we're now writing songs for the next album together, and we've done 14 already. Do you ever regret that leather became your trademark? I mean, doesn't that get hot on stage? I do make the joke sometimes. I say, right, how dumb am I? I chose the heaviest instrument. I play bass guitar and the hottest outfit. How dumb am I? You know? <laughs> no, you know, I don't know. I, I just, it's funny. It's funny to me that that happened. I'm so used to wearing it now, and it actually uh, keeps me fit, to tell you the truth. You know, how many 70-year-olds do you know that can jog five miles? How many 70-year-olds are 69, the last gig I did, do you know, that can do two-hour show on stage with the leather jumpsuit and the bass guitar? And be jogging around and singing and playing and do everything I do. And I'm not a, I'm not a quiet performer and not even be out of breath at the end of the show. Sounds like rock and roll is keeping you young. It is. That's what it is. My husband gets quite annoyed. Why aren't you out of breath? Sorry, but I'm not. Going back to that question of boiling down your life to a documentary. I mean, were there things that you wanted in there or things that you wanted to express that you weren't able to in the time that was allotted? No. In fact, it was quite a nice long documentary. Um, I think we covered everything sufficiently. I said everything I wanted to say. The record was put straight. You saw me warts and all, which is what I wanted. I am pleased. I'm so pleased with how we did it. I think he created a work of art. He did a bloody good job. Ms. Quattro, thank you so much. This was such an honor to talk with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you got everything you needed. How did you guys meet? We met, oh, gee, it was a quite a long time ago we first met through a mutual friend who was doing a film. I think Leanne was, was shooting it, and it was a sort mm. of a mockumentary feature that ended up with 30 or 40 sort of people con- contributing. Yeah, and and that was it. And, and we just, you know, we remembered each other. And then Liam had another project going, which he, he was talking to me about a, a few years ago. And and that was sort of that was struggling mm-hmm. a little bit. And then out of the blue, I got this call from him and said, "Hey, I've I've just met Susie Quattro, and she's agreed to do a film." Liam, how did you come up with the idea of doing a Susie Quattro documentary? At the time, I was definitely on the hunt for a a music based documentary because being a musician like Tate, I just had a real affinity for the subject and a real curiosity about the lives of rock stars and and I was really just looking for a suitable subject really you know on my in my periphery and a mutual friend had suggested that you know no one had done a documentary on Susie Quattro 
And my immediate reaction was, well, I'm not really a diehard fan. I'm not sure how I would do that. And, and then I actually sat on it for a couple of days and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. You know, I could actually bring a real interesting perspective objectivity to, to this. And so I you know, sort of re reevaluated my feelings about Susie and listened to more of her music. And I thought, no, no, this is really good. She's got an interesting story. And, uh, and I knew that the, the, the magnitude of the project or what I perceived it to be was too big for me alone. Um, and I knew Tate was a real gun at this sort of stuff. So that's when I, I reached out and, uh, and said, Hey, look what I got. Tate, how did you end up becoming a producer? I played in bands when I was really young, started quite young, sort of from 15 to, to 26, I suppose. And somewhere in my mid twenties, I started working in the film industry, but actually in cinemas and in, in distribution. So I've really professionally worked in film the whole time, but I did all these other things, distribution, you know, running cinemas, distributing films, and it sort of led to, led to producing. But all, all the time, of course, you know, when you're into music, you're into music. It's like a life, it's a lifetime, it's a, you know, long, a lifetime sentence. You know? <laughs> so I haven't played for a long time. But uh, other than in my, you know, in my garage, but um, I'm old enough to have been around the first time when Susie broke. And as you can probably tell from the film, Susie was huge in Australia right from the get go. So I was very aware of her. I loved the music when I was, when I was a kid and I was very aware of her career. And, and because she still tours here regularly, there's some, some guy here who's kept the log. He's got a, like a, a website of every international tour of every international artist in Australia since, you know, post-World War II. And he claims that Susie Quattro has toured more than anybody. Even ABBA. <laughs> Even ABBA, yeah. Wow. So Su Susie would be here, and, you know, like everyone, her career over a long time, 40 years now, we've seen these wanes, even within Australia, she would be doing, you know, not great venue back in the 90s or something, you know, doing maybe not the best venues and only, only playing to a few hundred people. And, and, you know, last year she was playing to several thousand people again in all, all the major cities. There's certainly a baby boomer nostalgia kind of wave, but we went to shows. What we really loved it. We went to shows and there were people of all ages, obviously, you know, parents who are bringing their kids and, 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 and you know, a lot of 20 somethings. And it's just, it's just Australians have always related to her as a real kind of guitar based. Hard rock. That's the way we see her here. You know, so much of the, you know, in the film we flirt with these things about the way she's perceived in different places, and here she's seen as a hard rock act. Liam, this wasn't your first documentary. Can you tell me a little bit about King of the Mountain? It was completed, but unfortunately, due to all sorts of issues, including licensing costs that were shelved, I just feel a very natural affinity with the documentary form. I've dabbled with drama and comedy and, and things like that. And, you know, my background is music video predominantly, but there just seems to be some kind of simpatico with me and documentaries. Um, I really enjoy them. I enjoy the process and I enjoy, you know, peeling the layers on subjects and getting to the heart of the story and more so than perhaps other um, preceding people have done because I was never, I never wanted to do a, you know, a straight music documentary that most people do sort of churn out. And most of them are sort of, based on tragedy or sort of a posthumous theme. And I thought it was a real challenge to do one on somebody who was very much alive and kicking and almost catching a second wave of, of their career, you know, right near the end, so to speak. So, you know, and I thought, oh, that's, re that's a real challenge. That's really interesting. So, so once you decided that you were going to make this, you said that you met with Susie, and I'm curious what her reaction to that proposal was. 
Oh, I think Susie's very much a, you know, a 50 year veteran of the industry. So she's very, uh, protective or defensive of her legacy, if you like. And so I, I think it was a lot of toing and froing between her to sort of build a, a certain amount of trust that, uh, she was putting this in the right hands of myself and Tate. You know, I knew it would be a challenge. I knew it would take a while to sort of peel those layers and get behind the mask, so to speak. But I was confident that we could do it because, you know, reading her autobiography, I could tell that she wasn't obviously uh, a shrinking violet and she wasn't going to put a, a heavy spin on, on the truth. So it was really just a matter of building that actual trust foundation, mm-hmm. you know, to, to know we had a film and to make it work. One of the other things about the film taking so long to complete was actually, a, in some respects, it was a, you know, it was a drag for us, but it gave us this ongoing access to Susie. I mean, we interviewed her many times over maybe four years. Oh, right, right up towards the end. Remember, we did another interview. Mm. So, so she, she had more access to us as well. She got to know us better. She understood the film. You know, by the end, she, you know, she really understood the film. She'd already seen an early cut. And we could keep digging and digging a bit further. And if there's anything that we were missing in the narrative, we came back probably seven interviews. I think we probably did with her over in different mm. countries over, over four years. You know, we had to get past the, as Liam was sort of alluding to before, she had this, she's told the story so many times. Can you imagine? You know? <laughs> so we had to get past the, the pre-rehearsed narrative, the version that she just naturally comes out with and, and put, push her a bit. So that was like an indirect, you know, benefit of taking so long to, you know, to complete the film. Exactly. We, yeah. we always wanted to get to the subject. We knew, because the kind of person she is, you know, she's very driven and she, we knew that she'd done all these different things, like even living in a musical theater and write, you know, writing and publishing poetry. And not a lot of rock stars, you know, do that. So. That was a really nice device, the idea of her poetry throughout and just kind of framing up different moments of her life with that. That was very clever. Creatively speaking, what she does is maybe unconsciously very uh, off the moment, very biographical. So if you look at the Susie's songs and what she was recording through her career, they were almost chapter marks of where she was at that time or what she was experiencing. And then that's true of the poetry as well. So it was a real blessing to be able to utilize not only the songs, but those poetry pieces as chapters almost as, as indicators. How did you finally manage to break through that facade? I'm very curious. Was it just a matter of the time or were there certain things where you were able to finally connect with her and where you would actually be like, oh, I'm seeing something that I haven't seen before? Well, we, we were recording um, at her house in England and Tata, Tata joined us for that uh, journey, uh, that that particular trip. On the first day of filming, we felt like we weren't getting anywhere. You know, we had the, we had the crew there. We had the lights there. And so Tate actually suggested at the end of that day that maybe that, I, you know, I would come back the next day just by myself and leave the crew at home and I would just do the sound and the lights by myself. And that was really the breakthrough moment because then it became much more of a conversational piece between two friends, if you like. We were just in this room alone together for hours. And that's when she really opened up because she wasn't performing for the camera anymore or, you know, for the people in the room. She was just having a very honest, sincere conversation. And I, I think at that moment it was, it was a good, you know, Mark's struck by, by Tate to suggest that, but I knew at that moment we definitely had a film, more than a film, you know, something that was really interesting. With those subsequent interviews, did you leave everybody at home or was she more comfortable now if, say, Tate came with you? I think it triggered a point of trust at that point. So it really didn't, yeah, it didn't matter who was there after that. It became just a very, uh, 
open dialogue, if you like. That was my most enjoyable part of the experience, was those moments. Liam said that he's not a fan, but Kate, are you a fan of Susie Quattro, or were you a fan of her work before you started this project? I was definitely aware of all the original albums through the 70s. Um, am I a monster fan? No. I mean, we've met the We've met the mega fans. <laughs> I'm not a mega fan, but of course, working working on it for so long um, and listing revisiting all the material as we did, you know, I, I I have come to really love the most of the albums. You know, some are certainly better than others, and the, there are a couple of later albums, even in, into the I guess it's the 90s. She starts to go a bit a bit soft, but those first few records, they're also incredibly well produced. I mean, Mike Chapman's an absolute genius. And I realized later that no one covers those songs because they're really hard to reproduce. There's a few producing tricks that Lenny and Susie talk about and Mike talks about, you know, where he speeds up. I think it's in the film, you know, they, they sped it up a tiny bit, that he would double track guitars and just lift the drums right up in the mix. Like, like the drums are the dominant instrument and he, and, and then he double tracks Susie's, Susie's vocals and things like this. There were, you know, pretty ahead of their time for 1973, 1974. And I, I just always knew there was something special about those records. But then my favorite song of all, honestly, is actually a ballad that Mike Chapman wrote called The Girl from Detroit City, which is like a cruisy Motown kind of, you know, R&B groove that we just love. And that was, when was that, Liam? Like, quite recent, right? Yeah, I think it was in the last, I think, five years ago. She did that with Mike uh, as an add-on for the box set release yeah. of hers, the, the compilation. Yeah. And it was just, yeah, it's a wonderful track and a killer bass line. Uh, and surprisingly, Mike wrote the lyrics to it. You would imagine that it was Susie writing those lyrics. They're so personal and so uh, autobiographical, but it was actually Mike who, who penned it. And Obviously, he knows her because he absolutely nailed it. What were some of the biggest challenges, Liam, that you had making this documentary? I think the biggest challenge, and I think it's true of you know any filmmaker wherever you are, and that is financing, especially when you're dealing with uh, a subject matter that requires so much licensing and permissions and the songs alone. If you don't know who to talk to, if you don't know which you know tracks to grease, you're, you're just paying through the nose for this stuff, and it could it's very prohibitive if you, if you don't get the support and the and the investment uh, required. Um, a lot of similar documentaries stall exactly because of that reason, and that's certainly my experience. What had to have been tough, too, because you point out in the documentary that she was switching labels quite often. It gets so messy over time. Where <laughs> even even some ind- an individual song might be licensed to f- like three or four different parties now, you know, because people have done other deals, like Nikki Chin's publishing is handled by somebody else for North America and stuff like that. But it's true that in a way that was the hardest thing because we got fantastic access. Everyone that we approached with one exception was happy to talk to us and made it work and fit into the schedule because they all, all these people who, who knew Susie's, you know, role and knew the history and knew her significance. They were happy to, you know, to testify to that. And that was that. I thought that would be the hard bit, but no, Alice and, you know, Henry Winkler and, Shuri, Kari, Joan, that was actually easy. You know, I mean, organizing our schedules, that was another matter. I mean, we chased Joan Jett and her schedule for two or three years. And then the irony was 
we ended up interviewing her on tour in Melbourne, you know, five minutes from my office. <laughs> we would have yeah, gone outside right. of the world to get the interview. And Alice too, remember Alice at the, at the venue, which is also five minutes from, my, from the office, you know. So we had some, some good fortune there, again, through the benefit of having time where we eventually waited and they came to us. Their enthusiasm and willingness to sort of uh, participate is simply because they all did recognise that Susie had been sort of unfairly marginalised and her legacy kind of pushed aside. And so I, I think that's why, you know, they, they they all put their hand up and just said, yeah, when do you want us? It surprised Tate and myself immensely because yeah. uh, we did think that was going to be a real challenge, but it uh, it wasn't. That was the easy part. Well, I'm sure that the licensing couldn't have been a surprise to you as far as how difficult that was. Were there, was there anything that kind of shocked you as far as we thought this was going to be the simple thing and then it ends up being the hard thing? Certainly one thing was wanting to find, you know, archive material that wasn't, you know, that everyone had, had not seen, you know, that was lazy, a lazy, cheap one hour television version would have had a third of the number of interviews and a third of the number of songs and wouldn't have, wouldn't have done the archive research that we did. Although I realized in the YouTube era or the Google era, people are used to seeing all this material, but they see a, a low-res version on their computer and it kind of looks okay, but they don't understand that the film, you've really got to try and get the originals or the or best quality scans and things like that. And same with music video clips from, say, you know, TV appearances or whatever. We're talking about material from the 70s and 80s, and a lot of that was had disappeared and was lost. The BBC famously reused their videotapes, you know, that like anyone going into that era just... I know, I know whole feature films that, you know, t- TV movies that were erased by the BBC. But the personal stuff and the important stuff, the subject matter was, you know, not the, the headache that we, that we kind of expected, I suppose. There was, the other thing was that at some point in the middle of the process, we started pitching the film when we're talking to Americans, issue of Susie's confused identity really came up. I had people tell me as we're looking at a photo of Susie, I had Americans telling me, no, that's Joan Jett. And, I, I, and I've been researching it for three years and, I'm, and they're trying to tell me that it's just, you know, really. So that thing that Joan said, which we did not prompt, where Joan makes a comment about people used to come up to me and go, hey, you know, thinking I was in happy days. We didn't prompt that. She, she volunteered that. But that's exactly what we experienced. So then we realized, and I'm not just saying this because we're talking to you now. I think two-thirds of the way through that editing of the film we sort of changed the direction a little bit we felt like we were making the film for north america because we had history that needed to be rewritten or or or, or corrected that became really important to me and and the fact that she's from detroit you know not from essex or, or manchester but from detroit just makes it even more bizarre and poignant detroit is so important to society you know you think in my reputation, believe me, wherever we are, whenever she's talking, she's talking about how her heart is, is in Detroit. How was her family to deal with? Her family are actually really lovely people. Her sisters are lovely people to a fault. I mean, I really enjoyed their company and they were very willing to sit down and talk. It's interesting, obviously, the way they come across in the documentary because, you know, Italian-American families are very vocal. It's a strange dynamic that's, you know, to the outsider may seem a little abrasive or, or unsympathetic, but that's just really the dynamic of the family. Um, and I guess we all have different dynamics in each family, so to outsiders we all probably look a bit odd or whatever. In that context, I, I understand 
Oh, I, I got some insight into that dynamic and, um, they're just a very honest, vocal Italian American family who talk with their hands, you know, and, um, I, I know that they've probably been a little t- taken aback, I guess, by the, um, the reaction of the film. And, and I know that uh, there's a little, you know, the tension with Susie and her sister still to this day does exist. And I'm not sure if that will ever be resolved. I, I, I have no idea there, but, um, you know, they're, they're just a very honest family, even when the camera's rolling. It was that frankness that uh, we really appreciated. I mean, it's Nancy, the younger sister, who says, and people often misinterpret what she says. You know, she says, I will never be a fan of Susie Quattro. And then she, she qualifies that by saying, you know, I love everything she's done, but what she's genuinely saying is I'm not a fan. How can I be? I'm a sister. You know, we have a deeper and different dynamic. She's not being nasty. She's just being really honest. It was a surprise to us that, that, you know, women that age would still have this lingering sort of resentment almost that their sister had this success that, you know, maybe they had really wanted as well. It never crossed our mind that this would still be, you know, a thing, but it clearly is. But now on reflection, we totally get it. I think a few people have mentioned after seeing the film, they were like, wow, I found that stuff with her sisters really kind of sad and fascinating. And geez, I wish you kind of delved into that a bit more. And, and I kind of thought, well, I don't think me or Tate wanted to exploit that either. You know, we obviously want to talk about it and touch upon it and examine it. But I think there was, we wanted to pull back a little and not exploit that or be too voyeuristic about it because there was a lot of trust involved in sitting down with them and talking about this. And ultimately, you know, this, this is Susie's story. Yeah, that was on our mind for, first and foremost. How do we, how do we handle that specific topic in the film? What's got to be so difficult for you guys to take a woman who's had this long career, this great life, and try to condense that down into 90 minutes for a, for a feature documentary? I mean, there are so many different routes that you can go when it comes to your research and so many different things that you can choose to show or not. What was your original cut of this movie like, and what are some of the things, you know, I always talk about how you kill your babies. You know, what were some of those babies that you had to kill along the way? Well, the future director's cut will be six hours long, so <laughs> it was very difficult, as we call it, drowning those puppies. Um, you know, because no, in all honesty, you know, it, it could well have been two hours long, quite easily. Yeah, we but, had a three-hour cut when it was more than you know, a bit more than a sort of a rough cut. It was a bit more than an assembly, and that was three hours. And then we just, you know, honed away, honed away at that. But yeah, you, well, what do we have to lose? I suppose there, there was a version in which it was. We plotted in a more linear way through, you know, the 80s and 90s and, and into the, the noughties. And that we, we had to really kind of com- compress all that. We spent so much time on the early period because we felt, going back to what I was saying about realizing we, we, we had to maybe redress some history, particularly for North America, we wanted to plant the seeds of that, the, the origin of in, in, with the pleasure seekers in the 60s and Susie's rise in the early seventies to cement this sense of, you know, she was, she was first. And I would have people telling me, Oh, yeah, but what about Hart? And what about the runaways? And I'm, and I'm going, guys, it's just history. It's just fact. You know, <laughs> do you want me to pull out all the dates? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, and at the, on the other hand, we, we wanted to back that up, which is why we have that passage in the film where we do reference the handful of other women going right back to like, you know, Big Mama Thornton who played 
guitar. For us, the defining element was not being a singer, being a player in a rock band, not pop. Even Grace Slick, we're like a hippie folk, you know, Jefferson Airplane, like a hippie folk band with, with electric guitars. And I, and I love Grace Slick, but, you know, it's really, there's really only Janice, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that <laughs> comes before. And we just wanted to get their history right. But when you see Big Mama Thornton wearing her best Sunday dress, <laughs> looks like she's just gone to church and she's playing that beautiful white Gibson SG and she's playing like the filthiest, dirtiest blues. You've got to, you've got to have some respect for that. I mean, she's just extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, tell me a little bit of the history of the film because I know that it's, it's shown in Australia and I'm curious where else it's shown and what the reaction has been so far. We premiered it in Melbourne at the uh, Melbourne International Film Festival, I think, back in August, wasn't it, Kate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and the reaction from the get-go was phenomenal, to me anyways. I, I, I was just taken aback by um, the positivity um, and, the, you know, the reaction from people. And, I, and then we took it to the UK, and we had a cinema run there in the UK with a, a number of screenings, and uh, then it went to Germany, Italy. Am I right here? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, then it was festivals, so uh, I forget what yeah. order, but you, you went to that one in Hof, and then um, there's yeah. a, 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 a music-focused series of festivals that take place in various places called In Edit. So that was um, mm. Barcelona, and mm. I think it also might have played Madrid. And then we've done sales to Japan, and it just the film just opened in Germany. The cinemas are, are open there, but only you know, half open. So obviously, like everyone, uh, every you know, in the last sort of four months, everything was disrupted, including the American release. I mean, our American distributor had already way back in March had twenty five cities booked, you know, for a cinema release. Susie was going to come. I think there was a festival. American premiere was going to be at Sonoma in California. That was about March. Susie was all booked to come. And just everything, of course, has been cancelled. Uh, it's already played in Holland uh, on, on television and sold to a number of European countries. But North America, in some ways, is is the important one. Weirdly, is is, is the, the important one. I think it'll have more resonance there. We're just really curious to see how people re- receive it. It's kind of like uh, her career, it looks like. You know, you show number one over here, number one over here, all these different places, and then it comes to America, and it's like, didn't even chart. So hopefully, you'll finally be able to crack the charts with this documentary. Yes. I think what's pleasing is, uh, with the initial uh, response from uh, reviews and, and, and critics, thus far with, with North America is, uh, I was very apprehensive as to how they would handle it, how they would receive it, whether they would understand it or care even. But that particular reaction has been phenomenal, you know. Um, the reviewers actually understand what the film's about. They understand the intent. They actually understand that Susie's legacy has been marginalised and, and criminally forgotten and, and that it's time to celebrate her again. And, you know, that gives me real hope, you know, that we, maybe we have sort of got it right. Liam Tate, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you guys. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> this is WJR FM Studios.
All right, we are back and talking about Suzy Cube. So I did have the question, and I think I've already got my answer as far as do you need to be a Suzy fan to enjoy this movie? I don't think any of us were Suzy fans necessarily. Like, I mean, talking about fans earlier, but I don't think we were like hardcore fans of Suzy before watching this film. I even like to think that you could sort of say, I've never heard her music, or, you know, I don't particularly care for the music but still find this film fascinating. And that's really what a good documentary, never mind a music documentary, uh, should be able to do. You come in not caring for the subject matter. I mean, I know a lot of people who say that they don't particularly like watching sport, but some of the greatest documentaries that they've seen are sporting-related films. And I think the same should hold true with a really good music documentary. And really, I think that uh, uh, Liam and Tate, got this right, they edited it right, and just Susie Quattro is a fascinating musician. She's a fascinating person. And there's there's something there about, well, this is her music career, but there's the human side of it. You know, this is the scenario that she faced with her sisters and really don't need to be any sort of music fan to sort of be able to relate to that. Um, it's you know, just the story of someone who believed that she should have made it bigger than she did. There's a, a quote early on in, or maybe it's late in the film where, uh, she says, it's important to be validated by the ones that you love the most. That's universal. Uh, and that is to a large extent the theme of the film. So yeah, I definitely think that you don't need to be a Susie Quattro fan. You don't even need to know who she is. And sad to say, it seems like a lot of Americans still don't. Uh, I think anyone who just likes a well-told story should be able to get into this. I agree. And I will say I I am not a Susie Quattro expert, but I am definitely a fan, enough of a fan that I do own a T-shirt. That is true. I do have a Susie Quattro T-shirt, but also even in New York City, I can guarantee you plenty of people see that. And it's it's definitely an obscure thing to wear. They don't go, oh, wow, cool Susie Quattro shirt. Or at least most people don't. But I agree with you. I think this documentary does one of the best things a music documentary can do, which is introduce people to something who may know nothing about it. And you're right that unfortunately, uh, she was never, um, huge in the States. And I hope that this film helps. I hope in particular that young girls and young women see this, uh, because she deserves much more attention than she's gotten here. And I think as an introduction, uh, this movie's a really, really great start for anybody who's interested. As soon as you said, Morris, this film is an introduction to somebody and that you might not know who she is and that the best documentaries are the way that, you know, you might not know the subject matter. matter. I immediately thought of Joe Bryath AD, this documentary about Joe Bryath, the quote unquote, the American Bowie. I had no idea who Joe Bryath was, just a friend of mine, um, Dion from Toronto, who's been on the show before. He recommended this documentary to me, and he started to tell me a little bit, but I was like, no, no, don't tell me too much. And just, I was exposed to this whole thing. I had no idea who this person was, and it just is an absolutely fascinating story. I would say the same thing for the Klaus Nomi documentary. Like, I know a little Klaus Nomi as far as, you know, Lightning Strikes, his cover of that, and seeing him in something like Erga Music War. That's it. And so to know the entire or what they fit into the documentary, the Klaus Nomi story is like, wow. So I agree. Like checking out documentaries about people who you may not know. I mean, it's weird because if you think about any 
quote unquote regular documentary, think about something like, you know, the, um, uh, three complete strangers. It's like, okay, I don't know what this story is. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to see this and be fascinated by it. I don't know why we would necessarily only want to see music documentaries about people that we already know, especially because if you're like me, you just sit and bitch about the things that they missed. Whereas with this, I don't know what they missed out of Susie's life because, like you said, I'm not a fan. So there could be whole chapters where it's like, wow, I really wish they would have covered when she did X, Y, and Z, but I'm too stupid to know that they're not doing that. So I get to sit in a blissful little bubble and enjoy what I see with Susie Q because I was riveted the entire time. On the very first episode of See Here, it was Tim's choice, and he picked Hated, the Gigi Allen story. Now, I didn't, I didn't even know who Gigi Allen was at the time. And I watched this documentary and, you know, musically, that was not my thing at all. But the film was absolutely fascinating. Once again, a great story is a great story told. And yeah, like you say, Mike, I can't imagine why anyone would just sort of want to say, right, I'm going to stick with my bubble and I know this band. So I want to watch a documentary. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching documentaries about musicians who you love of course they're often who the things are aimed at but i know that a few years ago my son max went and said to me um hey you should watch this documentary metal evolution uh by uh, the canadian documentarian uh sam dunn and it was like a whole 10-part tv series and uh, okay so the first few episodes were going to be up my alley uh, with you know, the origins of proto metal and the early seventies metal, but certainly as it goes through the eighties and into the nineties and uh, and beyond, uh, musically is definitely not my thing. But I found every second of that TV series so interesting, and it's not just about not knowing an artist. It can be a documentary about something that you don't even necessarily care about. But once again, a great story is a great story. I want to thank my co-host, Morris and Leon. Leon, what have you been up to during lockdown, sir? Uh, I just finished editing a feature documentary called The Big Johnson, which is directed by a really fun woman who's originally from here in New York named Lola Rock and Rolla. Uh, that's currently in post-production, but look for it hopefully in the near future. Also, I've been doing some pro bono editing for political organizations right now um, just to stay in shape and keep my sanity. Um, and I'm very slowly working on my next, um, my own documentary. If you want to know more about who I am or what I've been up to lately, the best thing you can do is check out leonchase.com. You even made a little bit of a splasher. You got picked up by a couple online places for the uh, new edit of Blade Runner you did. You want to talk about crazy ideas that I never would have done if I had absolutely nothing to do with my time that then accidentally became one of, I mean, in terms of numbers, it's probably one of the most successful things I've ever made, which is weird. Um, I've also learned that there are people out there who really, really, really don't like if you play around with their favorite movies. Well, I saw it and I loved it. And I think having uh, Navin Johnson as one of the replicants was a really good idea. And Morris, how are your projects going? That's the beautiful thing about podcasting. As long as you have Skype, nothing changes during this COVID period. So, um, yeah, look, this month we got, um, for Love That Album, uh, I'll be speaking to uh, a fellow who was the first uh, manager of Fairport Convention. One of my listeners had said, Oh, look, I'm a, I'm a friend of this fellow. Would you like to speak to him? I thought, Oh, well, you know, hell, I'm a Fairport Convention fan and a huge Richard Thompson fan. So 
put me in touch with him and uh, we'll be recording that next week. And he's done a lot of other things that are Fairport related beyond his time managing them. So be interesting to get his perspective on what the folk music scene of uh, England was like in the mid sixties in parallel to the rock and roll scene of, uh, of the time. Uh, for C here, it was Bernie's pick this month and he's picked a film I'd never even heard of. But uh, always a big fan of watching 70s American cinema. So he found a film with Peter Fonda and Susan St. James called Outlaw Blues. Never even heard of it before this. So looking forward to uh, giving that a watch and uh, seeing where that goes. I watched the trailer and it sort of looks like a maybe a country and Western version of the Blues Brothers. You know, these two characters are being chased everywhere by the cops and by everyone who pisses them off. But we'll watch the film and um, see whether that turns out to be the case. I just have to ask, do they, is there a point where they have to play a soul bar? <laughs> <laughs> After I've watched it, I'll let you know. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's show. You also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
welcome to the dive.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.